Rick Elias had a front row seat on flight 1549, the plane that crash landed in the Hudson River. We are getting word of a U.S. Airways plane crash in the Hudson River. Cactus 1539, we're gonna be in the Hudson. From that experience, he learned three things. One. I learned that it all changes in an instant. Two. I'm no longer trying to be right. I choose to be happy. Three. The only thing that matters in my life is being a great dad. On this podcast, Rick shares conversations with remarkable people and the three things he learns from them. People like our guest today, Neil Hoyne. Here's three things to know about Neil. One, he's the chief strategist at Google. Two, he's author of the book, Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. Three, he's at the forefront of how AI will disrupt businesses, our lives, and the world. This is Three Things with Rick Elias. Neil, we met about six months ago, and here you are. So welcome to Charlotte. Welcome to Red Ventures. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, what are you excited about as AI starts maturing? What are the use cases that you personally are excited to see it tackle, both in your, as a consumer, but also kind of in society problems? I love seeing that transition where you get technology in the hands of people that otherwise would stay away from it. Mm. Kind of like handing over and be like, what are you going to do with this? We do that when we dog food a lot of our hardware products, um, our, our internal beta process. One of the questions we ask is, how comfortable are you with new technology? And a lot of people put that one answer, be like, I'm comfortable with stuff that breaks all the time. And I, I talk to those guys, they're like, no, no, the people we really want are the people that are adverse to all this technology. We want to see what they do. We know what Googlers do and engineers do. We want to know for those people that hate technology, that stay away from technology, if we give you this, where, where are you going to take it? And that's what I think is happening right now with AI, which I, I enjoy watching, is to say, if you put this in the hands of kids, what do they do with it? I'm entering that stage now with, with my son. Yeah. Uh, they give him a How Chrome, old is he? He's seven. seven. So he's in first grade. They, they give you a Chromebook when you're in kindergarten. Hmm. Like every student has a Chromebook to take home. And what I did was one day, and I made this mistake, I put him in front of YouTube. Yeah. And I said, you can type in anything you want. And then I just got, I kind of left him to it. And he just kind of sits there at a moment, and then he's looking at the keys, and he typed in, he's like, how to draw Super Mario. And then that video loads, and that's what he spent his time doing. And what we've been watching with him is that he now has this portal where he's searching all the things that he's interested in but hasn't directly expressed to us. Like, we ask him all the time, well, what do you want for your birthday? What do you yeah. want for Christmas? And he'll pull out the toy catalog and point at this, like, I want a rock polishing set. It's like, are you into rock polishing? He's like, no, but it looks cool. <laughs> and now we're getting him into this portal to say, you have access to anything in the world. What are you going to look for? And I feel like we're at that stage now, just as a society, we're saying, here's all the, the content that's been written in humanity, mm. compiled into a model that can answer your questions and talk in different ways. What are you going to ask it to do? But don't you come back to trust? And right now, the technology is so early and the trust is so low that for the things that really matter, when, when would the technology be at a place where it can be trusted or the consumer will trust it? As with any product adoption, I think we're going to naturally learn the limits. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those are going to be from direct experience, like that lawyer that wrote an entire a legal brief right, right, using right, chat so GPT and had nothing wrong. I, don't, I would hope he's not going to use chat GPT for his next case. And I think everybody goes through it. I had one time where there was an introduction where they thought it would be kind of neat. They'd be like, we're going to have Bard do Neil's introduction. And I got on stage, and it was a great introduction. Like, 
was creative. It was colorful. It wasn't you. Half the shit was wrong. No. <laughs> and I was like, never use this for me because I know this is a limit that I shouldn't go. Now I, you can kind of you, you touch the hot stove. We don't want to do this again. And I think that's what's great about getting this technology to be accessible is I think that we're naturally learning the limits. Yeah. And again, people go through those exercises. I trust product A to give me better results than product B. You know, one of the things that you said is speed really, really matters. And don't let perfection be the enemy of progress. Tell us about your research and, and, and what have you seen in companies that flex that muscle the best? It's not a surprise to anyone here that we, we love to remove risk from our decision making. You know, even for all the Silicon Valley platitudes, like, fail faster. I, I still yet, in 13 years of Google, I've never seen anyone come in and be like, hey, so how are you doing this morning? I'm going to go fail. I'm going to go break something. But companies pursue it. And I generally, the way that I like to frame it is I, I have this story I like to tell executives. I call it my, my bear story, which is that, you know, uh, if you go hiking in Northern California, they have all these signs. It's new to me. In Chicago, we don't have bears. But anywhere you go in California, like, you may encounter bears, uh, which is a bit of a problem because uh, bears can kill you. And it's one of those existential problems, and I like to say that oftentimes companies are confronted with their own bear problems, where they see something coming that could change, challenge, transform their business. And so they're sitting in the forest, and I always picture them as like, okay, here comes our bear. We see it. They recognize it early on. And then they do the very large company thing. They gather like 80 more people in the forest, and they say, we're not going to do anything until we have our perfect strategy for running away from this bear. And, and at the end, nobody does anything. They're just, they're just planning for what they will do to address this. And they're thinking about how great it's going to be when they're perfect. And the companies that I work with that win are ones that recognize that same problem, but just start running. And they're like, look, we don't know exactly where we're going to end up, but we know we're better off if we get more space between the problem and we get further ahead in this space than our competition. And it's always funny working on both sides because competitors will then look at that company and be like, how did they do this? How did they get ahead of us? How are they solving this problem? How did they find the perfect answer? And the reality was there never was a perfect answer. They just knew that they needed to do better than where they were today. They needed to just start leaning in. And there's going to be times where maybe they're like, we shouldn't have run that way, we should have run that way. Yeah. But again, the same truth is we're still making progress and getting ahead. You know, focus being the force multiplier, I think speed is really the differentiator. If you focus, then it becomes, it's a matter of speed. It is. What's your view on focus? I think we're, adaptation, again, a quote from earlier today, but just because it's top of mind, when you have a surplus of anything, you're going to have a shortage of something else. If you have a surplus of data, a surplus of opportunities, you're going to have a shortage of attention and focus because there are so many things that can pull you in different directions. And mass media doesn't help. I'll admit that. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm like, focus time, I'm going to answer an email. They're like, let's see what YouTube has. And then three hours later, I get back to that email. And so it's just something that you have to be deliberate on, but also comfortable with the opportunities that you're turning down. And it's something that I actually keep a log of. I look at what am I choosing and what am I avoiding? And this happens personally. I'm going to go on this trip, but I'm not going to do this conference. All right. And I often, the way that I look at focus is to say, not only is it that deliberate act of saying, these are the things I'm going to focus on at the cost of all else, yeah. but then going back a couple months later and say, did I get it right? Most people, I think, we understand the concept of focus. I think people understand, I need to get a deck or an email done so I can focus at that moment. I don't see enough focus on large-scale projects or initiatives to say, I'm going to push this through at all costs to get it done. What are the skills that you would tell a 25, 28, 30-year-old that they, if they don't have, they should invest in getting above and beyond right now so that they can be relevant in the next 10, 20 years? 
I'll give you two. The ability to tell a good story. Like mm-hmm. one day my, my son came up to me, this is before he, he had words or language, and he came up and I was picking him up from school and he was just hyperactive, like he had sugar at lunch and he's bouncing all over the place. He's like throwing his arms at random directions and running place to place. And I looked at his teacher and I was like, what, what did you do to him? And she's like, we did nothing. He's trying to tell you about his day. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like he's, he's pointing over there because they played with the water table. And then he got wet so he had to put his clothes on the other side. He's trying to share with you his day with all the enthusiasm he knows how. And I just thought at that moment, I'm like, God, I hope he never loses that. Because if I come and I ask him about his day and he sends me a PowerPoint slide, <laughs> you lost that skill. But when you tell people that, everybody comes and they tell me this. I tell, I tell students this all the time. They say, I am a great storyteller. And I'll hang out with them sometimes. You'll go get a drink, you'll hang out with their friends. And you're right, they are. And then you see them in the business context and they have nothing. They don't know how to communicate passion or interest or bring people together around a common cause. They don't know how to get people to support their product or their launch. It's just, here's my chart, and I hope you understand the rationality of it. And so we've been deliberate in saying, how do we train people to have more skills around storytelling so that you can connect the dots around what you know and what the other group is interested in and how they're compatible? Mm. And how do you tell that story? And it's just tough because everyone's like, well, I'm a great storyteller. You are but building that in a corporate environment is a much different skill that we don't train enough for. And so being able to build that storyteller, if you don't like that term, as a bridge between functions, which ties to the second thing. Uh, I have, more times than I can count, I've been inspired by people that have a certain amount of fearlessness in their career path. And I'm not talking about fearlessness like they, 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 they take dumb jobs or they, they say weird things to their boss or they take on risky projects. It's the people that have every reason to stay away from an area and still jump into it. You get this oftentimes in like a, a board meeting or something where you'll bring up data, and I'm surprised as how many people be like, oh, we're not data people. You can talk to the data people at lunch. They, they remove themselves from the conversation, and they start to put themselves in a bucket. They'll say, I'm a creative marketing person. Okay, and they are. But they say, by nature of that, I don't talk to the people that are doing the data science on marketing. I don't talk to finance people. I'm not going to talk to engineers. That's not my space. And the people that always buck that, it's a small percentage of people, they say, whenever I get that inkling that something scares me, that I don't want to learn about it, that I don't understand it, that I'm afraid I'm going to be dumb, that's when I lean in. Not because I, I, I want to be proven dumb, and, they're like, and sometimes I am. Some executives even say that. They're like, I don't know what I'm doing in this room. But they say, because I know if I have this feeling, chances are everybody else in my function has the same which means I'm gonna have a unique skill if I can connect our work closer to engineers because everybody else stayed away. And so they pay attention to those areas that nobody wants to go in, that everyone thinks is a responsibility of someone else, and they say, this is where I wanna go. Mm. Not to be perfect, but just to have that foundation so that I can communicate, I can persuade, and just I can understand how to motivate and lead these people towards a common goal. Just quick comments on, and, and reverse order. I think that notion of curiosity or willing to jump in into something you're uncomfortable with. It is a habit. And it is a habit that if you cultivate it as young, then you will have it no matter what. Because at the end of the day, especially in the AI world, generalists will be very, very valuable. Yes. People that know enough about enough. Exactly. And I think that's a skill that culture should cultivate. Yes. I think your, your second point in storytelling, I am a huge believer in that. Uh, there's a difference between storytelling and telling a story. 
Telling a story is when you're making something up and people confuse storytelling and telling a story. Storytelling is what you said, is how do I convey what I know so that you know, I can engage the audience and then seek out what they know or what they're looking to find out. And, and uh, I think it's a, a great skill. And then last comment, we had a, a beloved leader here who retired now probably five years ago, who later in life had a little baby and I had dinner with him. And he was telling me they have like a, a year and a half old or two year old, something like that. And they communicate in sign language, not because he can't talk, it's because they have heard that they can communicate much easier and they don't get frustrated. So a lot of the terrible twos and terrible threes is the inability to communicate. Back to your point, and he's like, it's the coolest thing to see this little kid, really, in sign language, really being able to communicate. So you just trigger that thought. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that inability to communicate ends at two. Yeah. I think every time I sit next to a finance person, I'm like, EBITDA, and I'm like, CPA. <laughs> you see that gap. It's not the same language. If you can understand why I'm excited about it, what I see in these challenges, then it works. And it's the same thing. Yeah, We, we taught our, our, both of our kids some basic sign language so they could express their needs and close that gap, that they could feel empowered to say, look, these adults, I don't speak this language. I physically can't speak this language or understand it but I still know how to take charge of what's happening and to express what I need, and it'll be listened to. That, that, the earlier you build that, the better. Yeah. And I say that even with organizations. When you go to new teams, the earlier you can communicate that. You may not be an engineer. Like, I can, I can code. I will never acknowledge that to anyone in Google Engineering, because mm. they, 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 they can code. Like yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they've yeah, built their entire life around this. But where we collaborate is that they know I respect the complexity of their jobs and what they have to do, and they understand what I'm up against, just yeah. because they took the time to listen to what's happening on my side. How do you learn? Conversations. Conversations. The more people that I can engage, the more people I can listen to and talk to. That was actually my, the thesis that brought me to Google originally, yeah. was that a lot of companies in the Valley, why would I apply to a company 30-something times? Like, it's hard. Like, you get one rejection letter from a company, right? And those rejection letters are always terribly written. You know, it's like, we, we wish you the best in your career. I'm like, you don't care. Screw you. Whatever, yeah, it's like, you're done, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Hit the button. No, my first rejection from Google, actually, I had a, a friend wrote a glowing recommendation letter. They rejected me, like, four hours later on a holiday. Like, somebody logged in and on you Labor still Day wanted to, go in to it. say no. Uh, right, and it. so why do you do it? And so my motivation was that it was not role, it was not title, it was not comp, but it was being able to surround myself every day with some of the best people in the field. And even if I could never be a great programmer, yeah. I would be able to learn and go around people that are great programmers. And, and what, all, all I realized with time is that that extends far beyond Google's walls yeah. to say there are a lot of smart people out in the world if you break out of your immediate group and say, I just want to have conversations with them about how they see the world. Yeah. Whether we agree or disagree, at least I get to learn how a different group, a different person views their world and how I may approach my problems. Accordingly. When was the last time you changed your mind? My, my, my team is well aware that I changed my mind uh, more times than I can count. I always preface it. I say, this is the best information that I have right now. You bring me more data, I may change. I have, I have no ego towards saying I know the direction anyone's going because I don't. I even, I, you know what you say? Even a preface to this is what I always tell people. I say, what I, what I provide in these conversations is a point of view. It's not an answer, it's not a truth, this is where AI is heading, these are the skills you should build. It's a point of view for you to take and to critically use and say, I either agree or I don't, and either one is fine, but to be aware of it. When did you change your mind in the, since I met you on something related to AI? I will tell you that I'm slightly more positive with it. So when we last met, 
Uh, interesting transition, by the way, that happens with um, ChatGPT is that usage drops um, in May. College students. Yeah, and then bumps up. And there was one of the engineers found a correlation between Minecraft search search query volume and ChatGPT usage. They just cross each other in May and August. <laughs> Cyclically. And they started backing into it. They're like, I think this is a third or a, uh, a third or maybe a half of all AI usage now are college students. And they extrapolate out and they're like, Well, what are college students doing with it? Writing papers. And so they're like, So half of AI is writing papers, and the other half are building content farms. And that's the end of it. And, and I've been encouraged by the directions that, that some of these models have taken and how companies have used it. So I think what I was surprised about was at that time, I didn't see enough companies embracing the tools. I saw a lot of companies talking about it. Yeah. But now we're actually getting to that mass where you're seeing the results of those efforts saying, all right, companies actually get it. But when I see companies, I'm like, what are you doing with AI? I'm starting to see that progress to say, it's not simply that they're investing AI because they have this tool. They're investing because they know how it better serves their customers. And so my outlook on it is becoming more positive by the day. Tell me your view on kind of AI has existed for a decade, you know, in terms of yeah. many different ways that it's been put to use, probably Google by better than most. Let's talk a little bit of the, the large language models sure. and, and, and the chat. And what, more importantly, once you give everybody a little bit of your view on the context, where, where do you think we are in the arc right now? So right now we're at the spot, I think, where AI has found its voice. And we were joking about it. If you go back into Wired, September 2020, they had an article talking about uh, GPT-3, all the things it could do. It could write song lyrics, it can build book reports, it can craft research papers using all the information on the internet, and collectively everybody sighed. In fact, even during that time, people predicting and saying, we're headed to a new AI winter because we don't see the capabilities and the promises of these technologies being realized. And so what changed between September 2020 and January 2023? They found a story. Mm -hmm. They found a way to make that technology accessible through a chatbot of all things. If you looked at the original iterations of GPT-3, they were technical as hell. I didn't even want to use it like you had all these knobs and things. And I'm like, I don't know what this does, but if I press it, oh, look, I spend more money. And I don't know how this changes the quality of my output. It was technical. There was no language or audience except for people in AI. And then everybody else on the outside being like, I hear all this noise about AI. Where's the potential? When is it going to change my life? Yeah. Besides, I think IBM Watson doing a cookbook, which was terrible recipes. That was the pinnacle of AI. And then I remember when I showed my wife GP, uh, ChatGPT, and I was like, watch this. And she's like, can I write a letter of recommendation for our babysitter? I was like, yeah, sure, type that in. And all of a sudden, I connected with her, and she's like, this is the power of AI. But it didn't stop there. It was now you had people in different functions saying, if it can do this, if large language models can do this, this is where I would apply it in my business. And they started then having those conversations with the engineers and the AI experts to say, you built all this tech, here's how you can finally apply it to my space, and that's what's accelerating. Mm. Now what I don't know, and this is a curiosity, is will it accelerate or will it pull back over the next six months? Mm. And I think about this deliberately, it's not a it's not an indicator of the capabilities of this technology. It's almost that, as you were talking about, pendulums going the other way. Has it gone too far? Too this, fast. This is my story. A friend of mine is a mobile game developer. He spent three years building his mobile game. It's his role-playing thing. It's phenomenal. And some investors came to him and said, look, if you really want to get money, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebrand your company to say you're using AI. He's like, I, I have no AI in my product. It's like, it don't matter. Just, just, it's a black box. It's proprietary. 
And I have no question that investors will dump money if he says, I have a gaming AI platform that I've built. And so I do worry about that other side. When I look at companies and they say, well, we're using AI, there is that filter on my side to say, are you really using AI or do you have a whole bunch of Excel spreadsheets that you call AI because that's what the market wants to hear? What is the right way for publishers to use AI? The way that I like to frame the opportunity is, is to say that AI is not creating anything. Hmm. Go back and look at what are the problems your customers, your audiences are trying to solve. Does AI help you get to a better solution for them? And so I always go back to that. I say what an AI enables us to do is to be able to solve customer problems perhaps faster, more efficiently, better than traditional techniques that we have. Hmm. We can personalize it. The demo would travel itineraries. We can help you build a better trip. This is maybe something we couldn't do previously. But it wasn't because we said we needed to use AI. It was because we heard that you have this problem in your life. And so that's where I look at that potential for publishers, as I say. You have an understanding of your audience. As long as your focus is on them, their needs, and perhaps this is a time to lean even harder on customers to ask them more about what you could develop and build with the lens of these tools in mind, to then go back and to say we can deliver these and build a great business model around it. So the evolution more than upsetting anything from the norm. You mentioned earlier a staggering number of PowerPoint charts. Uh, what, what was that stat? Uh, little, uh, it's, right now it's about 322,000 a week slides uh, at Google. We make 322,000 slides, like the lifeblood of the company. It's like what do you think is the right amount? Zero. No, I shouldn't say that. The finance people, there need to be charts and tables. When I was in grade school, I'm not sure if anyone had to do this, when I had to do book reports, right? You had like those index cards that like have your key talking points and you just get comfortable with the space. I, I'm, I'm very cautious that those index cards have like just moved onto screen for a lot of the executives I work with. And, and you see it, great people who can tell compelling stories but they look just as surprised as the audience about the next slide. Um, what my, my concern about slides is that when you look at the research of it, when you give somebody data, they compare it on the merits of that data, A versus B. If you really want to motivate someone or to see that vision, that's a poor way to tell that story. If you want to motivate a team to be like, well, this team was motivated 20% more than that team, that is a hard argument to make because it just doesn't speak to the same mechanisms that we use for our heart and what we get interested in, what we get motivated on. And so slides are great when there's factual information, there's something to provide. Otherwise, I think we're all natural storytellers and I think slides take us away from that. Speaking of, you wrote a book. I did. Convert it. Uh, What's the core premise of the book? What's the, the core, the core advice? premise is, is really that a lot of the ways that we do marketing, my world, are too short term. We think about metrics and KPIs. We don't think about the people on the other side and the relationships that we're building. And so there's an opportunity, if you look at those customers on the other side as being more human, to be able to connect with them, to build those relationships and make better decisions with the marketing that we yeah. have than just focusing on what they're going to be able to do for me today. I agree. Listen, a ton of fun. Thank you. Uh, thank me. you for coming all, all <laughs> across the country to come see us. So My thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. This is the example of a conversation that could have gone on for hours. Here are my three takeaways. One. I really enjoyed Neil's story of the bear. It was reaffirmation that progress will always beat out perfection. After all, perfection is like control. They are both false premises. Two. 
is the importance of storytelling and curiosity in developing our own skills. In a world where AI will be manifested throughout our work, those two skills is what will keep humans at the center of all interactions. Three. I really liked how Neil reframed an opinion which is personal and must be defended with a point of view which is temporary and can be debated. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Find at Rick Elias on social media and let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.